This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And big Hollywood Jew, Joshua Molina. <laughs> Aloha. We'll get there. We'll, we'll find the perfect title for you. We'll get there. Each week, I'm going to try and... That's not a comment on my weight, is it? Because I have put on a little... No, this wasn't you on the Bullworth set eating all the... <laughs> Kosher chicken. (laughs) Today on the show, we've got returning Gentile of the Week, Rishikesh Hirway. He hosted the West Wing Weekly podcast with Joshua Molina. He hosts the Song Exploder podcast, and he's also a musician himself. He even shares some of his new music with us. We're also bringing you the latest installment of Across the USA, our series checking out Jewish life across the country, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. On this segment, Liel takes us with him to Colorado, to drop his kids off at a Jewish summer camp off the beaten path. But first, Liel, you've returned from that trip to summer camp. You're about to head off to Israel for your daughter's bas mitzvah, as John Mulaney says. I mean, am I? Will it be there? Will the airport be open? Will the roads be accessible? (laughs) As we record this, I should say we record this. It is Tuesday now. It is one day. After the Israeli Knesset or parliament voted on one of the three cornerstones of the so-called judicial reform, as of uh, this recording, there is even more chaos than usual. And so, yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm excited. By the way, this is airing like a week and a half from now. So we've taken this really, I think, bold approach, acknowledging that we will never be up to date on the news. We are recording this so far in advance that there's no chance because, uh, Liel, you head off. We have a lot of scheduling stuff. So we are doing this super early. There's a reasonable chance that the all of humanity will have been destroyed by AI and we don't even get to talk Before next episode. week. Yeah, no, yeah. that's true. That's right. true. If you sole survivors are hearing this in your secure underground location. No, you know what, Stephanie? This is going to sound insanely self-serving because here I am trying to find reason retroactively to justify perfectly convenient scheduling decisions. But I think there's a bigger thing to be said here. Look, as you can imagine, time and space sort of stood still yesterday because on both ends of this discussion, uh, there are a lot of people who feel very passionately in Israel, including my nearest and dearest. A lot of people who really felt like what happened in Israel yesterday was completely unprecedented, who really felt like the country was entering a new and and dangerous precedent. And, and naturally, these people and, and, and me with them and a lot of us here in, in America who care about Israel and about Jewish life really felt, I think, compelled to basically drop everything and succumb or submit to this outrage. I, I want to make um, a kind of a counter argument. Uh, there's a, a wonderful, of course, like all good Jewish tales start with, you know, once upon a time, there was a wonderful Christian minister who said, her name is Nadia Bowles, and she wrote this great essay. And she said, look, Once upon a time, she used to live in this old dilapidated home and the home had like really faulty wiring. The electrical system was like really kind of junko. And so some of us may be familiar with this condition. Like if you plug in one appliance and then plug in a second appliance, the fuse basically blows. And she said, that's actually a really great analogy for human capacity for outrage. You can't live in a state of perpetual anxiety, perpetual anger, perpetual indignance. Uh, You just can't. I'm here to say you can try. (laughs) (laughs) And Twitter or X will get you there. (laughs) You know, I think if there's any kind of Jewish message to these days, I think it's twofold. First of all, to remember, and we're uh, fast nearing Tisha B'Av, although by the time this airs, it will be past. To remember that 
there are going to be people who radically disagree with you and they're good people. And they're people who have very good reasons to have whatever opinion they came up with. And they're not fascists or communists or treasonists or America haters or Israel haters or Jew haters or self-haters or any sort of haters. They're just people who see the world differently. And the second thing, which I think is even more important, is this note of like Jewish life is deeper. It's wider than this. You don't have to spend every minute being like, well, as a Jew, I'm committed, which is why I always protest against BB's government or against Trump or against settlements or against this, that or the other. It's okay to just say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually going to be Jewish today. And my way of being Jewish is studying a page or something or doing some Yiddish on Duolingo or watching a great Israeli show on Netflix or just kind of being a normal person and doing something creative and, and generative and soul affirming. And so I hope this lack of address to the situation in Israel on this year podcast gives people a kind of permission slash encouragement. Go and do something that makes you happy. I think that's a fine, actually a good message and a substantive message that resonates with me. But I will also add to your other people have extremely opposed or whatever, diametrically opposed opinions to yours. If you are going to engage, I, I just, I, I'm tweeting about it today or Xing about it or Xing about it or whatever the verb is, or gerund, I should say. And I'm getting the predictable response from some Israelis saying, you live in the United States, don't have an opinion until you make Aliyah. Uh, and I find that boring and predictable and shallow, superficial. There's no rule that you have to, <laughs> you can't have an opinion about another part of the world unless you live in it. Yeah, but let's strike a deal. Let's say, okay, guys, I'm not going to have an opinion until I make Aliyah. You do not get to criticize any of my performances until you've been in several <laughs> Emmy-nominated until, shows. Until I play Israel. Correct. No, and maybe it's crass of me, but with $4 billion in annual aid comes some opinions on Twitter. Get over it. <laughs> you didn't read the fine print. It is interesting to be an American Jew. We sort of said this when the protest started quite a long time ago. It's, it is strange to be watching from here and trying to understand and seeing a lot of what feels like American style divisiveness imported there in a way. And I'm not sure how ready I am to stand up to that opinion, but it's hard for us to, to watch and to try to understand and then to be told, like, don't say anything, but don't not say anything. I mean, I think we're all in this this sort of strange situation. See, but hold on. But 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 they got the worst of American style divisiveness, but then took it as Israelis always will, a step too far. Do you know what these and this is not a political comment. This is not to take a side. Do you know what these what these soulless people did? They shut down the aroma cafes. They shut down the McDonald's. <laughs> Can you imagine in America, anyone ever shutting down all McDonald's restaurants for any reason? That's an outrage. It's weird. I did know that the Hamburglar was involved in judicial reform. <laughs> this is all Grimace. This is Grimace's legislation. By the way, I'm sorry. If I'm BB, the great move you can make is like, guys, I am now announcing that Mayor McCheese is my new minister of justice. All things would just be solved. So it's going to be an all milk cabinet? Absolutely. <laughs> No, I don't get object to that. Okay, we managed, how Jewish is it? We managed to talk for 10, 12 minutes about not talking about an issue. About not talking about it. The thing I will say is that my Israeli cousins left after their whirlwind trip to the U.S. And while they were here, they did the thing that Israelis are, I think, legally, even post-judicial reform, required to do. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me guess, let me guess, let me guess, let me guess. Yes. Israelis doing things that Israelis are supposed to do. I I'm going to name... Four things that Israelis have to do while they're in America. You're going to tell me how many I hit. Ready? Yeah. And number one, go have a steak at the Peter Luger. Wait, did you know we did that? Uh. I don't think I did. Did you do that? Yes, because those two guys, Gideon and Aharoni, went to Peter Luger on their show. <laughs> Wait, I would are say, you kidding? 
Israelis here, uh, Peter Luger, and shopping at the Woodbury Commons. Oh my God, they did a whole day at Woodbury Commons. Oh Absolutely, they did. <laughs> we were Nailed texting it. them. It was like 8 p.m. We're like, are you guys back yet? They're like, we're still here, the Levi's store. Um, wait, that's so <laughs> funny. Outlet, outlet. You don't outlet. know the outlet? They wanted to go to Amish country because that show, Gideon Aharoni, they went to Amish country. And I'm like, I love that there are just like Israelis everywhere flocking to Peter Luger being like, I saw it on the show. Well, that's a bad Israeli impression. No, no, they did the thing, which is telling you what things are invented by Israelis when they come up in conversation. And so I think it's my professional responsibility to know some of this. Like, I do know the USB drive is an Israeli invention, but there were some I did not know. And we were, you know, making a salad. I actually Did you know helping. salad was invented by Israelis? Cherry tomatoes. N- named, named after Sherry Herring, the great <laughs> restaurant from Tel Aviv. And they were... <laughs> My cousins walked out of a bathroom and they were like, you know, your toilet has the two buttons, the one for long, one for short. And I was like, oh, yeah, like two buttons. And she's like, that is from Israel. (laughs) Israelis invented the dual flush when you need a lighter flush, when you need a heavier flush, a more thorough flush. The dual lipa. We really need to work on your on your Israeli accent, by the way. It it comes off as like, you know, Eastern Bulgarian. It doesn't matter. It's it's with love. That's my important Israeli update. Um, I know there's nothing more important than that. Of the Jews, oh yeah, N-O-T-J news of the Jews. There is but one news item, I believe, to discuss for in our attempt to run away from all observable reality. Americans in droves visited theaters this week, movie theaters, to partake in the Barbenheimer, a new American tradition of seeing both Barbie and Oppenheimer. I will report that I I try to uh, find multiple tickets to both of these movies. It's the first time I remember in, I don't know, maybe a decade that movies were completely sold out in all hours of the day and night in New York. It was literally like you had to buy four or five days in advance just to get, you know, tickets even after opening weekend. It was it was really, really difficult. But Barbie, we could leave for some other time. But I saw Oppenheimer the other day and I know Yaakov. Molina, you did too. I haven't barbinated yet, but I opined. <laughs> how, uh, how, how did you find our man and our bomb? Did it bomb? Uh, I was underwhelmed. I hate to say it. And as an actor, I have to be careful because would love to work for Christopher Nolan. Big fan, sir. I'm sure you're listening to the podcast now. Big fan of your movies. Oppenheimer, I felt, I felt a little underwhelmed. I felt uh, I, I, the one thing a three-hour movie can't be is boring. I found it a little bit boring. Maybe I'm shallow. But first two hours, you know everything that's going to happen, which is difficult. The last hour, I started to learn some stuff about Oppenheimer that I didn't know and about his story and about his troubles. I, I don't know. What did you think? I was blown away by so many things. I, I saw it. It was like 11 p.m. when this movie started. It ended, I don't know, it ended literally three hours ago. It ended in the morning sometime. Did you do Mincha during the during the middle of it? I, I, did, I, did, I did Marv and Shachris in the theater. I was blown away. I, I think it's probably like the most Jewish movie I have ever seen in my life. It is basically, I mean, look, every everything to me is the most Jewish something I've ever seen. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? <laughs> This is much more. Oh my lord! This is so much more Jewish. Because tell me you know why. the famous story how like the, the Japanese saw Fiddler on the Roof and like oh my god, how did you know Japanese culture so well? Because it's like so universal. This is not a universal movie. This is a very particular Jewish movie. Because like the thrust of it, and this is not really a spoiler for anyone, but it's about a fight between two Jews. One is J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is the inventor of or the father of of the the A bomb. And the other is Admiral 
Louis Strauss, who is kind of a, a, a big kind of Washington power broker. The thing that is really interesting, and Christopher Nolan doesn't really put it in the foreground, but it makes the movie all the more interesting. Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., is supposed to be the villain of the movie. He's the one who kind of orchestrates and machinates the whole kind of hearing that costs Oppenheimer his security clearance, which is the, the dramatic framework of the movie. While he is supposedly the villain of the movie, he's also, as is made clear in the movie and also true in real life, he's a strongly committed Jew, the president of Temple Emmanuel. I believe at some point the president of the AJC as well, someone who has a very deep connection to his Jewish roots, someone who is very proud of his parents' humble beginnings as, as, a, as a shoe salesman. And he also has, as a result, I think, of, of his Jewish background, he has this belief of like, look, guys, we need to be strong because the world kind of tried to kill us, like not in distant memory, but like right now, like three years ago, this happened, which is why we need to kind of, you know, muscle up and, and, and have an adequate defense. And on the other hand is the movie's ostensible hero, Oppenheimer, who is completely mortified. Uh, who grew up on the Upper West Side in this, you know, swanky apartment with like Picassos hanging everywhere, who routinely argued that he wasn't, you know, he had nothing to do with, with being Jewish. The J in his name stood for Julius. And yet repeatedly throughout the movie, he says the J stands for nothing to try and distance himself from this kind of yiddy sounding name. And there are all these scenes in which he has conversations because something like six out of eight of the Manhattan Project leads were all Jews. So he has all these conversations with all these physicists and they talk to him about Jews in Europe. And he's like, I I'm not of this. These are not my people. And, and the real argument that he has with Strauss is that after the war, he basically kind of wants a world government type situation, a super UN that regulates all atomic energy, which of course, you know, is kind of a, a somewhat laughable position from, from our perspective today, but also arguably a very iffy position uh, when expressed in the 50s and with Stalin's terror already already being known to the world. So this is a, what I'm saying. It's a really morally complex story about two Jews who come to being Jewish in very different ways. And to me, that's the movie. That's the whole movie. That is not the movie I saw. Yes, <laughs> I would love to see the movie you just described. That sounds fantastic. I would sit and I'd watch it right now. I think you're bringing all sorts of stuff as yep. a, yes, a, a learned and knowledgeable man. Uh, it's called baggage. More so than I. You're bringing to what we both watched, I think, a lot of what was not, in fact, on the screen. I will say there's common <laughs> ground. What was most interesting about the story was the conflict between Strauss and Oppenheimer. And that was the last third of the movie where I was like, okay, now it's getting uh, more interesting. I found really zero Jewish content. There was a single line of dialogue where Strauss says, yes, I was the president of Temple Emmanuel, but there was no, I, I didn't think there were many characters. The whole idea that there's a discussion of whether Jews or non-Jews were playing the Jews, who, it didn't matter. There's no real, there are very few characters in the movie. Strauss is well-developed, Oppenheimer, somewhat so. But everyone else is just somebody walking around with a few lines of dialogue that could be played by anyone. That was my take. I was like, wow, this is really a conversation? Even Einstein. I mean, whatever. Put the white hair on anybody. They look like Einstein. He looked a little <laughs> bit to me like somebody. I love Tom Conti, brilliant actor. He looked a little bit to me like someone going to a Halloween party as Einstein. <laughs> right. Um, maybe that's uh, maybe that's criticism of the wig department. We'll have to get Benjamin Cohen on for the official Einstein estate movie review. Yes, we should. But yeah, I would like to see the I w maybe you should have d directed it. I would like to see that movie. 
Do people talk about this, and by people I either mean Jews or anti-Semites, that there were so many Jews involved in this stuff? That it was a super Jewy undertaking? I mean, is this the kind of thing where we're like, look at all the Jews behind the A-bomb? Like, or are we, do we not, yeah, like, do we not, do we shy away from that? Is that like the Nobel Prize list? Like, do anti-Semites pick up on this? Well, there's this line of dialogue in, in, in the movie in which he says, you know, I, I believe we're going to, to win this because, you know, Hitler's blind side is anti-Semitism. All these physicists left and he's completely obsessed with, you know, racial theories that make him see quantum mechanics as a uh, Jewish perversion. And by the time he, right, by the time he kind of wakes up, all the brilliant minds have already escaped. And he's stuck with Heisenberg, who may or may not have sabotaged the the enterprise. You know, but Joshua, I, I think you're completely correct. So uh, basically my recommendation here is A, Spend three or four years reading every biography you can of J. Robert Oppenheimer and everything related to it. Then another like decade being completely monomaniacally obsessed with being Jewish. Then enjoy the three hours in the theater and watch a movie of your making. <laughs> You're here. In your head. By the way, I actually do like it. I think it was a good movie. I, I guess it's, it's been built up so much that I was like, I had higher expectations. But I, I don't think it's a bad movie. You know, our friend, our friend John Pithortz wrote in uh, his movie reviews, like the greatest achievement of this movie, it's, it's the return of the serious middle brow movie. There used to be a lot of movies like this, like The Killing Fields, all these like great big movies that had big ideas about the world. And then it was all genre movies and superhero movies and gangster movies and stuff like that. And now, now we're back. We're back to serious movies. Well, there's one anyway. Well, there's one. It's called Barbie. So if you would allow me to, to continue this in the, the realm of the world of, of the arts, I have a headline for you, Joshua Molina. Bring it. This is from The Telegraph. Roald Dahl Museum condemns his, quote, undeniable racism. And then closes the museum? or <laughs> In the statement, the, the charity said its staff had received training to prevent anti-Semitism and will work to combat racism by, quote, being more welcoming, inclusive, diverse, and equitable. How about start by removing dairy from the cafeteria? Like, have some gesture that we could appreciate. <laughs> so this is a little bit of a confusing article, I will admit, because they say the statement comes after the author's family and the Roald Dahl Story Company apologized in December 2020 for anti-Semitic remarks made by the writer who died in 1990. So it seems that this was not has nothing to do with his books. This is about statements he made in interviews in like the 80s and 90s where he talked about Jews. Not to be confused with all the weird, are his books anti-Semitic or no? No, I think I am, I will say, an enormous fan of Roald Dahl's writing and an enormous fan of letting people know that he was an anti-Semite and a racist. I don't have any problem separating at least a dead artist from their art. If you're living, maybe I don't want to go patronize your work, but... Once you've had the good taste to die, I'm right there and uh, buying your books again. So, no, I don't, I don't know that his books were anti-Semitic at all that I can remember. And I've read, I feel like, most of them. There, there's some racism in his books. I mean, if you read uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas are smuggled in out of their tribe from Africa. Like, there's some stuff that's not pleasant. I, and I do feel like the grandparents, it's, there's a real shuttle vibe with them all in the same thing. But they're wearing the caps that feel waspy, like the the, the sleeping caps. <laughs> so I, yeah, that's I'm torn true. there. They're all chassidim. But also, weren't the witches? I feel like the witches were like supposed to be mm. like thinly veiled Jewish caricatures. Or I'm just reading into that and I'm anti-Semitic myself. I'm not sure. It's amazing. Look at us. We literally cannot read, see, or listen to anything without immediately making it about us and about Jews. Like, oh, that that is... <laughs> 
That is about Jews. Well, okay, because okay, so this is one of the <laughs> one of the statements that have been unearthed. I guess was this 1983 interview he did with the New Statesman, and he said there is a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews. <laughs> yes, I don't like Jews, is what he's saying, and and it's worth pointing out that this celebrated author was a Jew hater. There's a trait in Jews that makes them not generous towards non-Jews. <laughs> Right. That's 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 the entire history right there. Right, like Jewish aggression against all sorts of people. I know. And non-Jews have been so good to us. Who are we not to be grateful in return? M- remember World War Two or the war of Jewish aggression? <laughs> he capped it off really well. He said, I mean, there's always a reason why anti anything crops up anywhere. He added, even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. Uh, anyway, three years ago, the the Roald Dahl Story Company said it, quote, deeply apologized for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by his, quote, anti-Semitic statements. By the way, did you hear that cause? Like, sometimes my Long Island accent comes out. Huh. When I'm either, what is it, drunk, stressed, or tired, I'll be like, mm. also. <laughs> I can't You're Bulgarian it. again. I can't put it. <laughs> Do Israeli next. Okay. Um, I think, look, how can we top that? We got nothing else. What bothers us more, if either? anti-Semitic stuff within a work or these like random comments being like that stinker Hitler, like they're them actually holding those views. The second thing. Yeah, the second thing is worse. I mean, I also sometimes, I sometimes will see an artist attacked for a character that's racist or anti-Semitic. And I'm like, well, those are attributes of the character. Like, are they necessarily of the author or the creator of this piece of art? Like, And there's a utility, like there's a use for showing a racist character in a story to, like, highlight a yeah. lot of stuff sometimes. Yeah, then then this art is not reflecting the real world. But, I mean, it is of interest to me to, to try to discern whether the artist himself or herself is racist or anti-Semitic. But, I mean, I got a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're an artist. And you're a deeply anti-Semitic artist. And, and, right, and some, and some of your best friends are Jews. <laughs> That's right. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Now, our Gentile of the Week is Rishikesh Hirway, my dear, dear friend. He's hosted the West Wing Weekly podcast with me. He's also really the guy who created it. All his idea. He hosts the podcast Home Cooking, 
with the wonderful chef Samin Nosrat, and he's currently the host of the long-running podcast Song Exploder. And if you've never listened, each episode of Song Exploder features an interview with a musician where they meticulously take apart one of their songs and delve into the specific artistic decisions that went into creating the song and ultimately tell the story of how the song came to be. It's a wonderful podcast. I urge you to listen to it. Rishi is also a musician himself. In fact, the music you're hearing right now is from Rishi's last EP, Rooms I Used to Call My Own. Welcome to our Goy of the Week, my dear friend, Rishi Hirway. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for indulging my goyish crush on you. Thanks for being had. What are you up to? You are, to me, a creative machine and are always up to more than I can imagine being up to. What are, what are your latest? What are you doing? I'm working on two things mainly right now. Music. I'm working on writing and recording an album. And also I'm making the Song Exploder podcast, which was the, the first podcast that I started before Josh and I started the West Wing Weekly. Which is an amazing podcast, by the way. It is. It's brilliant. Thank you so much. How many episodes have you made? Uh, we just put out episode 256 yesterday. Mazel tov. Thank you. I'm going to just assume that's divisible by 18. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an amount you can give in a check at a bar mitzvah. Right. It feels <laughs> like it. It sounds like it. How many episodes did you two do of the West Wing Weekly? We did around 160. Wow. So... You've co-hosted a podcast with Josh Molina mm-hmm. before any of us did. So <laughs> before what? it was cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so like tell us a little bit about the experience. Like what are what are we in for in this new world where we found ourselves co-hosting a podcast with Josh Molina? Well, I imagine you've probably experienced a little bit of this already, which is public crankiness, private <laughs> sweetness. let's make sure you heard that the second part private sweetness that's if i were in the army that's how i'd be known (laughs) rishi i tried writing about music i wrote one book about leonard cohen it was the most freaking difficult thing i've ever done because capturing songs and music and things expressed via music in words I just found myself punching the wall with frustration. And yet here you Mm -hmm. are doing it and talking and presenting and thinking about music on your podcast in ways that are just like incredibly sound, at least to me, incredibly lucid and and incredibly illuminating. How does that happen? Well, I think that you really struck on the heart of it, which is you were writing and I'm working in an audio. And a lot of times on Song Exploder, the difficult work of trying to explicate a part or a feeling or, you know, the way they combine is best done just by just with a few words, but then really just playing the part, you know, letting the people hear that moment or that idea in isolation. That's, I I kind of feel like the real secret of the show is being able to take a song, strip away everything except for the little lyric or guitar part or drums, whatever the moment is that we're discussing and, and let people hear that because it transforms the way you hear it and it lets the artist talk about the song with a level of specificity that for me feels more accurate in terms of the day-to-day experiences of doing the work. And I think for the listeners and, and for the guests is a rare thing. Usually they're being interviewed about sort of the bigger ideas, the kind of like large format concepts of an album or, or, or even a song. But because 
on Song Exploder, you get to talk about, you know, these things in, in sort of more granular detail. A lot of bigger things actually come through because it's kind of like a show and tell format. That sounds great. And yet, even when you listen to these riffs, I mean, sometimes I think, well, I know what this particular lick or whatever makes me feel. Hmm. But even if I try to explain that feeling to myself, like it's so emotional and it's so private, even if I'm hearing it, it's like it's like trying to explain what you feel when you're eating the greatest ice cream cone ever. Like, I know the joy that I'm feeling right well, now. Well, Rishi's good at that, too. <laughs> He's <laughs> really good next at that. He has, cone he has invent, This is yeah. literally a man who does everything. He invented or developed, maybe I should say, a, a flavor of ice cream. And how would you describe it? <laughs> I, I made a flavor in collaboration with the um, ice cream company Salt and Straw that was based on a recipe, a dessert recipe that my mom used to make every Thanksgiving, mango pie. It was called Mom's Mango Pie. And it was a vanilla cream base with swirls of mango nectar. And there was like a an Indian sort of like kulfi cheese mixed into the ice cream. And then bits of graham cracker, like the graham cracker base of the pie. Oh my Lord. Sounds amazing. I'm salivating, listening to, he's good uh, at yeah. everything. You described it really well. I think it's just the voice, maybe. <laughs> Last song exploded question for me. If you could step into the DeLorean and travel back and do this with anyone ever, one song, one great who uh, who eluded us before our time. I mean, I, I feel like I don't even need the DeLorean to list people who have eluded me in the present. <laughs> 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 oh, so who's the great white whale that you could potentially get but haven't? Oh, I mean... And then we'll do... Uh, then we'll do Moses or whatever. <laughs> yeah. In terms of, if you're defining could in terms of they are still alive, <laughs> yeah. it's a very long list of people who won't return my call. But does one person sit atop it? Well, I remember when I started the show, I had this list of maybe five people who who I thought were kind of my, my Mount Rushmore wish list. And they were Bjork, Portishead, DJ Shadow, Questlove slash The Roots, and Aphex Twin. Wow. How many have you reeled in? I, uh, Bjork and Questlove and DJ Shadow have been on there. So, you know, making, making my way. But You introduced me to the music of Aphex Twin. I didn't know that. Well, there was a time when you invited me. But I, was, I really didn't belong. There was a group of people. You had to recommend something every That's right. week. Yeah, 10 by 10. For 10 weeks, I gathered a group of people to encourage them to buy a record, one record every week. Because I felt like in the age of streaming and stuff, like, I don't know, the process of just sitting with a record for a little bit had kind of gotten lost. And it was the goal to get everybody to engage with one record for a week and only that record. Like, you just listen to that. Because I always found that if you went to the record store and you bought like three or four records, you listened to one more than the rest and the others would kind of get neglected. But if you spaced it out, you'd listen to them with more attention. So everyone was supposed to listen to one record a week for 10 weeks. And then we, we kept it all in a, you know, in a shared Google spreadsheet and everybody could sort of list um, what they'd gotten that week and what they thought. And yeah, one of those, I remember that was when an Aphex Twin album came out and that was my purchase. And they, they survived the experience. They, they actually were able to, in the age of streaming, sit down and listen to a record a week. Well, I'm not sure how much everybody actually listened, but I think probably the, the combined group collective guilt slash peer pressure 
made everybody at least buy the record and fill out the spreadsheet, <laughs> whether or not they listen to it. So I, I have to ask you this. This is this is one of the things that I think about more than anything else, and it's it's one of like the sorest spots in the world for me. I I grew up a music obsessed nerd kid. Spent eighty percent of my time listening to albums. Mm. Uh, I have a twelve year old girl now who is music obsessed, and yet she is completely, it seems physically unable to listen to a record. I played her That Thing by uh, Lauryn Hill. She loved it. I was like, you know, the whole album is amazing. Like, let's yeah. sit and listen to an yeah. album. She's like, no, nah, it's okay. I heard the song. I go and like stream something else on Spotify. I feel like an old man yelling at the clouds uh, when I say, <laughs> this is destroying music. They can't even understand. A- am I just being, you know, cranky or am I right about this? I think probably both. (laughs) (laughs) It's very diplomatic. I think that there's an appreciation for, you know, sustained listening for something that an artist has made with the intention of like, listen to this from front to back in this order. These are the pauses. This is the sequence. It's a thing that a lot of work and time and thought has gone into. And you are someone who appreciates that and you want to share that appreciation. But a song is also a complete body of work. There's nothing wrong with listening to that song and then listening to another song. You know, it feels like your daughter's just curating an endless mixtape for herself. And I can't really uh, fault that. Right, but if, I, if I'm an artist, even one of, of great capacity coming up today, and I understand this to be the, the mentality, the mentality of like, well, you know, a song is all they're going to listen to and a song is its own body of work. So I'm going to focus on just training my own sensibilities and my own ambitions to limit them to a, a scope of or a scale of three and a half minutes at a time. Doesn't that change the complete way of how we think about and create music? I would say that that has already happened. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are a lot of artists for whom the sort of like unit of work is the song. One song comes out, another song comes out, another song comes out. You know, they might have 10 individual songs coming out over 18 months and no sense or plan for an album. Because, yeah, it's just about trying to get people to hear the thing that you've done. Yet here you are working on an album. Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> it, how do you get into the mindset, though? Well, I just spent last week in Texas at this incredible recording studio on a ranch uh, about 45 minutes outside of Austin called Blue Rock. They have a songwriting residency program that I applied for and, and I got into along with a couple other songwriters. There were four of us there total. And we spent the week, you know, we each had our own room and we'd sort of do our own thing. And then we'd come together at night to make dinner together and talk. Were you required to trash the room at the end as part of the residency? (laughs) Not required, but, you know, encouraged. (laughs) You rock and roll residency. I was really nervous about the idea of going. I was excited to have a week with sort of everything else in my life turned off except for writing. I'd never done anything like that where I was just by myself in a room day after day trying to write. And what I realized that I would have to do is turn off what I think is kind of a fundamental part of my personality, which is the judgmental side, the the sort of self-critical voice. Because if I didn't, and I started to think about whether or not the song I had written that day was actually good or not, and convinced myself, as I probably would, that it wasn't good, I could potentially sacrifice the whole week. The entire experience would, would sort of crater underneath me under my self-criticism. So I had to just practice writing a thing 
not thinking about whether it was good or not so that the next day I could just move on and write another thing and write another thing and hopefully continue to be productive and get the most out of that experience. And I was able to do that, which was great. And it felt like it kind of opened up something new for me. And, and hopefully, I, I mean, I hope that I can come back from that and be a little bit more productive and less judgmental. They're kind of, I need to be less judgmental in order to be productive. So that's, the, that's where my mental emotional state is currently. So tell me, uh, feel free to tell me to go fuck myself because uh, I know do I'm it. asking oh, for a do. lot. Oh, please do. That's yeah. good radio. Um, <laughs> can you play us something? Play you, oh my gosh, play you a song. Am I correct that a track from the upcoming album Cascade is available now? Yes, there are a couple songs that have, that have actually already come out. Is it okay with you that that and that song makes me sad? No, that that that's totally fine. Should I play that one? That'd be great. Okay, sure. This was a, this is a song that's about. It's sort of like a multi generational story. It's about a thought I had about my grandmother who who passed away a long while ago, a couple decades ago, having a vision when she was a young woman before she had any kids, imagining my niece, her great granddaughter you know, in a dream and, and realizing sort of the connection and the kind of generational link that they would have and, uh, and singing a lullaby to her in, in a dream. And the whole story is being told from the point of view of my sister who is singing it in, you know, sort of right now in the present tense to that actual niece. Is that too complicated? It's too complicated of a plot. No, it's amazing. amazing. No. I'll play you a little bit of it. And you can tell me, you know, whenever you want Beautiful. me to hit stop on it. Let's do it. I have chills. Just amazing. Gorgeous. That was incredible. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Ooh, what were we talking about? I don't think, we, I don't think there's anything else for us to say. So, no, we're, you know, we're overwhelmed. It's, it's the thing I really did want to, I'm, I'm really blown away by that. The thing I wanted to ask you is that it seems like from your work, at least your podcast work and, and something like the West Wing, like you're a real appreciator of something, right? And then you sort of analyze it and break it down, whether you do that on Song Exploder, the podcast, and then the Netflix version of it, where you really got to see you and how into all of this you were. And I wonder, do you ever like just not want to, like, do you ever just want to like listen to music? Or is that sort of how your mind works? You're always sort of like thinking about the bridge and this, and how did this come about? Like, can you turn that off, basically? Do you ever just watch like trashy TV? 
Um, not like Josh does, I have to <laughs> say. Uh, <laughs> hey. Josh, Josh's appetite for, for trashy TV is astonishing to me. For a man of his intellect, <laughs> when he starts I talking like about, things. I don't even know, Milf Island or whatever show it is that he's watching. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's, we'll talk later. It's a very good idea. Um, I think that the things that I love the most are also the things that make me want to make something the most. And as I start to have that feeling, I can't help but feel like wanting to get closer to the thing that I love. I think this is cl- true of me and people too. Like if there's something that I love, I just want to spend a lot of time with it and I want to understand what it is that it's doing to me and and sort of open myself up to that more. Because if you can figure that out, if you can figure out why it's making you feel so great, then maybe you know how to find more of that in the future. Is there something that's actually really simple that we can all take away? Like this idea that if we just like stop and listen and think, like we maybe even not think, we just connect. Like is it... Is it just the power of listening? And not even just listening. I mean, this isn't revolutionary by any means. Everyone has had this thought before. Everybody knows this. But, you know, like you're watching a TV show and it's great. Don't look at your phone at the same time. Unsurprisingly, you'll get more out of the viewing experience. Or, you know, even just one of the nice things about listening to a record is like an actual vinyl record is the physical process of you got to go put the thing on. It has to be a kind of an, an activity where there's some dedication. I I think just, you know, taking care, whether it's, yeah, listening to music or watching a TV show or or watching a movie. So Rishi, as a Gentile of the week, you get to ask us a question. I'm sure you know lots of Jews and have had the opportunity (laughs) to ask lots of them questions. But is there anything that you've you've always sort of wanted to know about us, us strange Hebrews? Well, far be it for me to ask the three of you to speak collectively for all Jews. Oh, we will. I'm, I'm 100%. Not, <laughs> not Super asking comfortable for, doing it. <laughs> but I, I would love to know what the three of you each individually think about this. So one of the things that has changed for me in terms of my music is uh, the last thing that I put out, this, this EP that came out last year and, and these new songs and the, the new album, I'm putting it out under my own name, under the name Rishi Way, which I've never done before. When I was first making music, first putting out records and playing shows, I used a moniker, I used the name, the 1AM radio. And part of the reason why I did that was because I had originally played a couple shows just under the name Rishikesh. And I remember someone asking if I made Indian music, like they thought they wondered if it was Indian music. And, and it gave me such a terrible shock and, and feeling because it's like, no, you know, I'm, I am a fan of, Nick Drake and Elliot Smith and other, you know, kind of singer songwriters who, uh, you know, it's just, I was like, no, just because my name is Indian doesn't mean anyway. And I I had this feeling that people were going to prejudge and potentially not listen to my music because of my name. And so I decided to use this moniker, which was, you know, not so out of the realm of possibility for singer songwriters back then in the, in the early two thousands. Anyway, there were people like Smog and Cat Power using aliases. Now, I feel like the world has changed enough that I am tentatively, you know, okay with the idea of using my own name and hoping that people aren't going to prejudge what the sound is. They aren't going to be scared by my silent H. <laughs> They're not going to be scared by the HR at the beginning of the name and be like, I'm not going to listen to this music. I might be wrong. I don't know. All of this is to say, these are things that I've been thinking about. And I was wondering how you feel about Robert Zimmerman changing his name to Bob Dylan 
when he decided to become an artist. I was wondering, you know, do you feel like you are at some level offended by the idea of someone who has kind of masked his heritage by changing his name in that way? Or do you feel forgiving of him because maybe he understood that there is enough embedded anti-Semitism in the world that that he actually would have limited his audience by using that name? Do you feel like there's some kind of weird, I mean, I've I've seen one quote from him about the name change and it was really unsatisfactory for me and it made me feel like almost there was like there was a little bit of some kind of not self-loathing that's too strong of a word but you know it seemed complicated i was wondering if the three of you have thought about this or if i'm asking you to think about it now for the first time how do you feel about it i've spent more time thinking about bob dylan than i probably spend thinking about i don't want to say my children but but you know <laughs> definitely most of my very near and dear loved ones you've probably been thinking about bob dylan for a lot longer than you had children so maybe collectively <laughs> i i started thinking about bob dylan you know very very soon after thinking about myself like there was consciousness uh self-awareness and then <laughs> what does he mean by uh yeah it's 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 that i wrote a book about leonard cohen in part because i knew that they won't let me write a book about bob dylan because there are too many of those. So I wrote a book about Bob Dylan that was kind of about Leonard Cohen. Here's what I think. I think it's it's a really amazing question with a kind of an asterisk that makes it seem like I'm avoiding the question. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So someone once asked Leonard Cohen uh, when he was young and just coming about, well, he wasn't that young when he started his career, but someone asked him, you know, your name is Leonard Cohen. It's a very Jewish name. Did you ever consider changing it? And he said, yes. And the interviewer said, to what? And he said, to Wednesday. And she said, to Leonard Wednesday? And he said, no, 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 Wednesday, Cohen. <laughs> uh, which, was, which was his funny way of saying, your question is ridiculous. I am Leonard Cohen. Bob Dylan is truly Bob Dylan. I don't think that the name change reflects any kind of attempt to escape his sort of Jewish roots, his identity, his belonging. Bob Dylan is, by all accounts, and and I've read, you know, pretty much everything written about this man, someone who is so sui generis, someone who is so unself-aware. I mean, his famous quote, I believe, in 1965 when he was playing in New York, it was Halloween, and he walked on stage and looked at everyone and said, I have my Bob Dylan mask on. I don't think there's a there there. I think he's an, a brilliant conduit for, for, for divine energies, which is why these songs come so quickly and furiously and so inexplicably, which is why everything goes in from, you know, Japanese crime novels to Civil War era music to bits of Christian and Jewish inspiration to Americana and American history and just gets blended in, in the fiery furnace of his completely unstable personality. And by all accounts, when he's not doing this, which is also why he's performing, what, something like 150 nights out of the year, when he's not doing it, there's really nothing there. It's amazing. You know, I so appreciate not just this question, but sort of your candor in, in, in sharing what you just did. And I think that there's something that I think a lot of Jewish people who do things deal with, right? Like there's all these questions people get like, are you a Jewish writer or are you a writer who's Jewish? Mm. It's so interesting to think about the ways in which we all present ourselves, like who we are and what our names say about us is really fascinating. I don't have an answer to your question because I don't I think I probably agree with Liel that Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan. I mean, it's like John Stewart. People get mad about John Stewart. 
They're like, he's oh, John yeah. Leibovitz. What's his real name? John Stuart Leibovitz. Yeah, and you're like, John Stewart's like a good, I, I don't want to undermine like the actual anti-Semitism that people who have changed their names have dealt with. Yeah. Well, I mean, I lean into it hard. My name on Twitter is Jew. So that's my own personal take. I don't hold anyone else up to any standard I think I might have. I think Dylan himself dealt with it on some level. I love his Christian phase, or maybe he had multiple Christian phases. One of my favorite albums of his is the gospel-y uh, Slow Train Coming. And on it, there's a song in which he says, you may call me Terry, you may call me Timmy, you may call me Bobby, you may call me Zimmy. You may call me RJ, you may call me Ray, you may call me anything, but no matter what you say, you're going to have to serve somebody. So I take that as his thing. Call him whatever you want. We're all here and there's something greater. And so I, I can never hold anything against Bob Dylan. He can call himself whatever he, he likes. Amen, Sela. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks for giving me your thoughts on that. What a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much for being our guest. And am I correct in saying that to follow everything you do, your podcasts, your music, your live events, your TV shows, rishikesh.co is the right place to go. H-R-I-S-H-I-K-E-S-H dot C-O. That's right. Although I might change it to Portman. Something more Jewishy. Velvel.co <laughs> <laughs> .co is the correct place to follow you. What about, what's Natalie Portman's real name? Like Hershkowitz or something? Hershlag. Hershlag, yeah, people like that one. Yeah, yeah. Rishikesh Hershlag, it's been so nice <laughs> having you on Unorthodox. Thanks for being back on the show. Thank you. This episode's Across the USA segment was produced with support from the Jewish Federations of North America. The Jewish Federations of North America are the backbone of the organized Jewish community in the U.S. and Canada, representing over 350 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $1 billion annually, including through planned giving and endowment programs to build flourishing Jewish communities domestically in Israel and around the world. For more information, visit jewishfederations.org. Mailbox Got a letter in the mailbox Got a letter in the mailbox Mailbox Okay, to the mailbox There is a lot of good stuff in the mailbox On our social media feeds All about things we've discussed recently From sliced bread to lab-grown meat To the game of Taki So, Liel, there are Hebrew words There are literally, like, words written in Hebrew script In this next email So please get us started Stephanie, you, you have awoken a drowsing giant in, in all of the robust community of Israeli Taki obsessives. Uh, and here is one amazing note. This one is from Yoni, hailing from Singapore. I just listened to the beginning of Kosher Face. And as a longtime Taki player and aficionado, this is the Israeli version of Uno, basically, to those of you just joining us, I wanted to first establish that Acharon is what you shout when you have a single card left. And you put your penultimate card, one of my favorite words, penultimate, down while you say it as your opponents are just eagerly awaiting to shout it before you get to, to get you to take more cards. I also wanted to recommend, as if all this mayhem and chaos wasn't enough, the Butnik household to get 
Kukutaki. I'll say it again. I just stop <laughs> saying it. Kukutaki, which is almost appropriate for a toddler. In this version, you still shout and yell a lot, but mostly animal noises. Except the animals are Israeli. Roosters don't go kakadoo They go kukuriku and so forth. So many memories. If you ever need to fact check Mr. Leibowitz on Israel gaming rules again, please feel free to reach out. Love you all, Yoni. Yoni, you are now our senior Singapore-based Israeli card game uh, correspondent. Kukutaki? Kukutaki. It's literally talkie with, with birds. Stephanie, honestly. Talkie with animals. As soon as I sign into my Airbnb in Tel Aviv, I'm running out and buying you <laughs> and Joshua copies of Kukutaki. <laughs> we could play on air. We could. That is amazing. Oh, this came through on our Facebook group. A very fun place. You should all join. Ido Steinberg says, they managed to include news about Israel that I didn't even know despite living here. I had no idea about the American style sweet bread craze. And the sweetness is what's new, he adds. We've had sliced bread for like forever and it has always been popular. This, of course, makes me wonder if Israel's really ready for the sweet bread craze. <laughs> well, now that the McDonald's is closed. What are sweet breads You gotta eat again? something. You gotta eat something. Sweet breads are like innards. Are they kosher? It's pancreas, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love sweet breads. I'm a big organ meat uh, consumer. Same here. Actually, that's not true. I'm a big organ meat fan. I don't eat a lot of it. (laughs) Same same exact. Would you call yourself a longtime organ eater and aficionado? (laughs) First time caller. Josh, can you read this tweet that came in from Yoel? This tweet, or what is it? It's not a tweet anymore. What is it? What do we call it? This tweet just in from at Yoel Yahoo. Yoel Yahu or Yoel says, the latest episode of the Unorthodox podcast had me thinking about lab-grown meat again. I've been vegetarian for over a decade, which is kosher style by default. Dot, dot, dot. Unlike many of my ilk, I'm the type that still has carnivores cravings and finds satisfaction in fake meat products that taste similar to real meat. I think I could convince myself to at least try lab-grown meat, but I don't think that would include pork or shrimp. That's amazing. I had the privilege of waking up a few days ago to an email from Dara Horn, which is always a big treat, novelist, podcaster, favorite of the show. And she's here to enlighten us. Uh, Get a load of this. I was surprised that no one in your lab-grown meat conversation raised a more basic kashrut issue with this technology, which is the concept of treif itself. This is so freaking fascinating. As you know, treif is a Yiddish form of the Hebrew terefa, which literally means torn. The term is now used just to mean any non-kosher food, but its origin is from the very basic dietary law of not tearing and eating a limb from a living animal. She adds, I guess this is how some people in the ancient world overcame a lack of refrigeration. Just keep the animal alive and chop off a piece of it whenever you want another lamb chop. Does that sound horrifying? Well, the Torah agrees. This law is considered so basic that it's even one of the seven laws that non-Jews are expected to follow, along with other basics like not murdering people. This, by the way, is really how Darahorn writes all emails. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a small novel. It's amazing. Fantastic. I hadn't thought of this in the context of lab-grown meat, but one of my kids did. A few years ago, he pointed out that lab-grown meat is exactly trafe. That is, it's a piece removed from a living animal. At the time, he posed this question to a rabbi who wasn't able to answer it, which I guess happens a lot with horned children. I am a mere Daf Yomi reader and very, very far from a halacha expert, but I suspect that people who know a lot more about halacha than I do have thought about this angle. 
I know there was a similar debate regarding animal rennet, which is an animal-derived enzyme sometimes used in cheese. And which oh, makes that's many the, people, the kosher pizza cheese? Correct. And which makes many people consider large categories of cheese unkosher. I believe a related question arose years ago regarding Jell-O, whose original forms also used animal byproducts. The similarity to the lab-grown meat case here is that these are both microscopic levels of animal-derived products, well below the 160th halachic standard for a legally significant ingredient. But that standard, in case all this wasn't complicated enough, but that standard, which I believe Joshua mentioned in your conversation, as indeed you did, uh, is for accidental inclusion. Bediavad, not intentional inclusion, lechatchila. That standard is intended to avoid enormous food waste in the event of an accidental spill. So the amount of the ingredient, even at these tiny levels, is not relevant if it is intentionally included. I'm actually really curious about whether people who know a lot more about halacha than I do are considering the fact that lab-grown meat might in fact be the literal definition of treif. If so, I'm rooting for these brilliant halachic minds to come up with a workaround for that, given the enormous potential of this technology. So if you are a brilliant halachic mind and are as moved as we are by Dara's absolute brilliance, write to us and tell us what you think. It's an exquisite email. <laughs> you should see our texts. I want to get in there. I want to be friends, Dara. I want in. This is amazing and has hurt my brain in a way that I think in is a good. good way. But, you know, this also reminds me that these Noahide laws, these came up last week on our Tishabov episode because, Josh, you referenced them. I have never heard of this, and I Googled it. This is so dumb, but I, I want to be open about the fact that I had literally no idea what you were talking about. So is this true? The descendants of Noah, which is everyone else, basically, have seven laws that they're supposed to abide by? There are seven laws that apply to everyone. Do you guys know them? Because I have them open on Wikipedia right now. Go ahead and and read them in a dramatic voice. Do the Bulgarian. No. Right. <laughs> Not, you know the idols? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not to worship. You should, my family's ready to kill me. Not to worship idols. Not to curse God. Not to commit murder. Not to commit adultery or sexual immorality. Not to steal. Not to eat flesh torn from a living animal, as we've been discussing. Uh, uh, and then to establish courts of justice. The idols and the cursing seems like an unfair way to judge people who aren't Jewish. Like, who cares what they worship? Well, just, I mean, yeah, I mean, so, I don't know. I took it as a point of pride that there's an idea of how we judge others who don't worship the way we do and that they're mostly ethical. It bothers me that we're also saying, also, you can't curse God. I mean, what if you're an atheist That's or, or, or it means nothing to you? Like, why do we apply that to a non-Jewish? Well, not, not, not to open a whole can of worms here, but they're actually really amazing, amazing, amazing traditions of rabbinic discussion of whether or not non-Jewish faith traditions with whom we interact have different gradations in them, which have to do with whether or not we consider them idol worshippers. I don't know. It just sounds like that lack of generosity towards a non-Jews that Roald Dahl is always talking about. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> At it again. <laughs> um, okay. One final entry in response to our conversation with Sarah Silverman about Jews and dairy. Uh, Life in Israel slash Gold My Year says, just putting this out there, dot, dot, dot. The Darien race. <laughs> I did see that. Tweet. Pretty good. Very good. <laughs> the 
Darian Race. Um, so thanks, thanks to all who participated in. Uh, t- t- reach out to your favorite Jewish podcasters this week. So everyone, keep sending us emails at unorthodoxtabavag.com. Leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Tag us on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. On Instagram at unorthodox podcast. On Facebook, Facebook group is unorthodox podcast. We'll see you there. J. Crew, this week we are bringing you another installment of our series Across the Jew SA, created with the generous support of the Jewish Federations of North America. So every month we travel to a different Jewish community. And this week I packed up the old car, took the family, and drove my kids all the way across the country to Jewish horse camp in bucolic rural Colorado to try and find out what is it that makes Jewish summer camp so magical. It was the day after school ended and all through the house, the noise was driving you crazy, you and your spouse. It's not that you don't love your adorable scamps, but now was the time to ship them to camp. It's Tuesday night. Where are we? Denver, Colorado. How did we get here? We took a road trip from New York City. I'm sorry, who are you? Hudson Leibowitz. Your age? Nine, almost ten. And what are you doing here in Denver, Colorado? I'm on my way to JCC Ranch Camp. I've never been before. This is your first time summer camp? Yes, it is. I'm Liel Leibowitz, and on this episode of Across the Jew SA, I'm packing up my kids and going to... Summer camp. Good morning. Hey, we today. Lily and Hudson Leibowitz. Fabulous. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a deli there. Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland. Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey. But there's a man of shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky. North, South Carolina. Looking for lots in a country diner. I can say we're on our way all across the USA. You won't hear my daughter Lily on this podcast because Lily is a tween and has much better things to do than appearing on her stupid dad's podcast. But as you heard, her younger brother was up for a chat. But why did he want to schlep across the USA to spend two and a half weeks in ranch camp? My sister said it was very fun. And I checked it out and actually had my own studies. And I talked with some people who have been in the camp before. And they told me fun things about it. And it looked really fun. So I wanted to go. Hudson's studies weren't wrong. Because academic studies repeatedly and routinely show that attending Jewish summer camp, more even than Jewish day school, makes it that much more likely that a kid grows up feeling a strong, lifelong sense of deep-seated Jewish identity. It's why 174,700 Jewish children, according to the Foundation for Jewish Camp, attended 162 Jewish day camps and 153 Jewish overnight camps in 2022 alone. It's because camp is a perfect opportunity to build community. But you know what? Why am I telling you about it? Let the pros do it. Here was the question on my mind. Why is Jewish summer camp so effective? In two words, because it's joyful Judaism, because it is immersive, joyful Judaism with no homework, with no parents, with nothing but joyful living in an immersive Jewish setting. 
I have two grandsons who just completed a session at Camp Ramon, California. They feel the same way I did and the same way my children did. It is generation to generation. It's the secret sauce. That's Julie Platt. She's chair of the board of the Jewish Federations of North America. She also used to be chair of the Foundation for Jewish Camp, so I figured she was the perfect person to talk about camp, or more specifically, about how it was that camp somehow managed to create a place that was kind of outside of normal space and time. I'm not from the big city. I am from Wichita, Kansas. I am from a teeny tiny Jewish community in the middle of the Midwest. For me, it was being surrounded by Jewish kids. And for many people who come from communities without a large Jewish population, it's the opportunity to make Jewish friends. And that can't be underestimated. As my grandson said, who is almost a bar mitzvah, so he has a little bit of wisdom, he articulated really in so many words that it's the great equalizer, that it doesn't matter what your background is and it doesn't matter how much money you have. You're all responsible for Nikayon, which is, you know, cleanup of the bunk. You're all responsible to be on time and put on your sunscreen. So it is a full equalizer across an age range that takes away all the stuff that happens in school settings, no matter where you're from. The freedom to be who you are, not judged by who your parents are, by what your background is, and by what your house looks like, is very freeing for these children. Caitlin Skeen agrees. She is the assistant director of Ranch Camp at the Steinberg Loop Jewish Community Center. I would say if you ask any returning camper, any returning staff member, one of the main reasons they come back is because of the community that we're able to create and the friendships that we're able to build. It's something that is really special. Like once you walk into these gates, there's some sort of like magic that happens of the intentionality we're able to create, the like love that we're willing to have for each other is really, really special. The community is something like we put a lot of intent into so people feel like they can be their truest selves at camp. But a big part of what makes it possible for kids to create a real community in just two short weeks is the fact that Ranch Camp isn't hosted at the JCC's beautiful Denver campus. It's located elsewhere. We're in Elbert, Colorado. Um, So the closest town to us is Elbert. Um, We actually increased the population of the city of Elbert while camp is in session. We're about an hour and a half southeast of Denver right now. How many kids are going to be here uh, by noon? About 130. It's our biggest session so far of the summer. Which leads us to the next obvious question. Sure, maybe you can create a wonderful community for kids out here in the middle of nowhere. But can you create a real Jewish community when you're, oh, I don't know, like 100 miles from the nearest Kanish? I thought I would ask Courtney Jacobson the JCC's general manager of camps and schools in Denver. Well, first, when you drive up that road, it feels like a Jewish space. And you walk in and it, or you drive in and it's immediately, you see it. And, and then you start to feel it. You know, and as you kind of walk around, there's 
Jewish stars. And we use a lot of Hebrew kind of throughout our day. There are a lot of rituals that we build in from the minute you wake up. We call it seamless Judaism, right? So that there's like these little opportunities throughout the day. Every morning we have Degel or flagpole and there are just some great community songs. You feel the energy immediately and you feel it all together. And that, you know, what a better way to just be with all of your best friends that you get to live with for two weeks, three weeks. Sometimes we have kids come the whole summer. Um, and then for our staff too, they feel the exact same way as the campers do, where it's, it's such a great engagement for everybody that gets to live, that gets the you know chance to go to camp and certainly ranch camp. Throughout your day, you know, we do, we're doing blessings before and after meals and we make them fun. Camp has this really, really fun way of tapping into Judaism. So now I was curious. I wanted to see if what Courtney was saying was true. If the space truly felt like a Jewish oasis to me. So I drove up the road and I noticed all these signs in Hebrew welcoming us to ranch camp. And then I heard this. That, in case you're uninitiated, is a song called Caramella. And it was a pretty big hit for the Israeli singer Moshe Peretz a few years back. And to hear Israeli pop blasting out here in the middle of a camp that sits right on the Colorado Trail, it already put me in the right mood. So now there was only one thing left to do. Meet the young men and women who will take care of our children for the next few weeks. Like Avi here, who is going to be Hudson's instructor. I've been a camper for 11 years and a staff member for two. Ascending into the upper ranks and like, being co-counselors with people who were your counselors, and uh, it's it's definitely a, an interesting experience. So this is this is a real community for you. hundred percent. This is like my family, my home away from home, if you will. Camp really helped me grow and come into myself. I was a really shy kid. I like super introverted, not really into social activities to say the least. Going to camp and almost being forced out of my shell, uh, it was really good for me. I've grown so much. Did it do anything to shape how you see yourself as a Jew, your Jewish identity? Oh, 100%. Like Shabbat here is the most meaningful Jewish experience I've ever had. It's just something about the place is magical and the people you're with and the songs you're singing. Like I've never felt more connected. Like, of course I go to services and like I participate, but singing with everyone at ranch camp and dancing and like being with your friends and your family and your community is something else. For one, it's just the location, right? You're outside. So you get to like look around and you see trees in the Colorado sky and it's beautiful. You get to breathe the air. It engages all of your senses instead of just, just a few. Just looking around me, even though I've been to camp at that point for a total of maybe six minutes, I could tell that Avi was right, that there was something magical something different about living a Jewish life out here in the wilds of Colorado. A Jewish life that wasn't just about talking and singing and praying, but also about learning how to take care of animals. So I walked over to the lovely horse standing nearby to see if he will talk to us, but he was too busy having his breakfast. His handler, however, was happy to chat. My name is Gal. I'm from Israel, from Modi'in. I am the head of the barn here. That means I'm not a kids counselor, I'm a horse counselor, and I'm taking care of all the horses. I told Gal that back in New York, some of us don't necessarily think about horseback riding as a particularly Jewish undertaking. She looked at me from atop her beautiful brown horse with a strange sort of look, saying she didn't really understand the question. 
Why wouldn't riding horses be a Jewish thing? After all, it was such a soulful activity. It's amazing. Kids are like so responsive to horses and the other way around. And horses teach kids a lot of important stuff. So I love my job. I was really moved by what Gal said. To her, all the divisions we spend so much time and energy worrying about, between East Coast Jews and West Coast Jews, between religious Jews and secular Jews, all those simply didn't exist. There were just Jews. And if you put them together on a gorgeous farm and let them ride a bunch of gorgeous horses, well, they will know just how to create the sort of community that's way more cohesive than what we could come up with on the outside, out there in the real world. I was lost in thought, but Hudson was getting restless. He wanted to see his cabin and meet his other counselors. Hello. All right, let's see cabin five in real time. Hello. Hello. Hey. I'm his counselor. Leo, nice to meet you. Israel? Yeah. From where? Ashdod. Ashdod, Hudson. He'll be here for the summer. Sababa. Nathan was very new to the United States, but his understanding of what it took to build Jewish spaces was already very sharp. I guess I wanted to see how Jewish life looks in the U.S., so I came here. And what does it look like? Uh, very different, I'd say. I think people are much more aware of their uh, Judaism here, much more of a community forms around it here than in Israel, when it's often taken for granted, in my, in my opinion. So it's been really interesting to see how that camps into effect in camp. Nathan was making a good point. Camp was the one Jewish space where you couldn't just take Judaism for granted. You couldn't just be Jewish. You had to do Jewish. And at camp, there are a lot of ways to do Jewish. And of course, we wanted to share all of them with you, which meant really that we wanted to go to camp ourselves. Okay, I wanted to go to camp myself, but my children said it wasn't cool and that they'd rather I stayed away from their camp, the selfish little imps. So before my wife Lisa and I left, I asked Caitlin, the camp's assistant director, to record some key moments throughout the week. Like when campers were singing. Or shouting cheerfully. Or saying Birkat Hamazon, the blessing over the food. Or, of course, playing Gaga. And when you listen to these sounds, even from 1,700 miles away, it becomes very, very clear why ranch camp is so great and why there's nothing like Jewish summer camp to make you feel, well, deeply Jewish, not just for two or four or eight weeks, but for the rest of your life. Maybe one day my kids will let me join. Until then, I'll just join them from afar 
in singing some beautiful Hebrew song. And I hope you do too. Time for some mazel tubs. Josh, kick us off. A hearty mazel tub to the winner. And yes, I'm going to say it. The Jewish winner <laughs> of the World Series of Poker main event, Daniel Weinman, who took down a $12 million plus payday for beating an incredibly large field of thousands. Well done. That's six million times two. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, wow. There you go. There you have it. It means a lot to us. Oofa. Uh, mazel tov. What about you, Leo? I have a very special mazel tov. By the time you hear this, we would be mere days away. And I, I think she's probably mortified to hear her name in this year podcast. But I don't care. I'm, I'm pulling rank to Lily Bessie Yael Leibowitz, my very beloved daughter, who will celebrate her bat mitzvah in Israel this week who is rocking her parsha and who wrote a truly stunning but mitzvah speech. So proud of you and love you so much. Oh, beautiful. Mazel T, Lily. That's good. Mazel T Ford. That's that's a whole other issue. <laughs> this comes in from listener Rachel Slovin, who wrote in about her mom, Allison Pure Slovin, the director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Chicago, whose Mobile Museum of Tolerance has been making a splash this summer, getting a lot of great local attention and publicity. So mazel tov to you, Allison, and let us know if that Mobile Museum of Tolerance is headed our way. Mazel tov to you also, Rachel Slovin, for being the best daughter ever, writing in for mom. So before we end today's show, I want to let you know that we're doing something exciting this year for Elul, the Hebrew month leading up to the high holidays. We'll be airing four special Elul episodes, each focusing on a different aspect of preparing for the high holidays. There will be music, food, soul searching, and much more. It all starts on August 17th, which means we are off next week, August 10th, putting the finishing touches on the series. So we'll see you back here in two weeks for our Elul extravaganza. Okay, Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Jerome Rasquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbuck. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us emails at unorthodoxtablemag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. I've always been completely fascinated by the demands for physical transformation 
what what can you tell me about this? I, I all I all I can really tell you is that I don't get those roles. I get the can can he fit into a suit and play a lawyer? Fine. <laughs> just, just tell us what size we can. There are plenty of sizes of suits. 